Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jose Cole to our show. Dr. Cole is Dean of the School of Social Work at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. Additionally, he was just appointed the acting dean of the College of Education at Portland State. Hi, Jose. So excited to have you on our show today, since it's obvious that you're a pretty busy guy right now. Uh, Dave, it's a pleasure uh, to be here and to be here with your listeners as well. So thank you for the invitation. So could you please tell me about the School of Social Work at Portland State and why students select that university? Definitely. Um, I'd be delighted to, to uh, speak about the School of Social Work at Portland State University, which is really uh, unique uh, in so many aspects. But uh, the first part that I would say is that, to my knowledge, it's the only school of social work in the country that was enacted actually by a Senate um, um, and House bill in the state of Oregon in 1959. Uh, most schools of social work are the ones that I've always been engaged with usually are kind of a grassroots effort internally with either sociology or anthropology. And, and there's some kind of uh, elective being offered in, in social work. And then that blossoms into a school of social work. Here, it was a very different approach, which is from the top down. Now there was some, in 1957, some ongoing advocacy by social workers to address the needs of child welfare in the state of Oregon. Uh, and that advocacy went to the state legislators and they're the ones that kind of uh, put together uh, this actual uh, bill, which actually I have I found and have framed in my office uh, <laughs> to remind uh, to remind um, my faculty and our students and the important work and what we've been kind of blessed with, which is uh, to not only prepare social workers but really prepare social workers to address the needs of the most vulnerable population of the state. We're also unique in in the sense that we're the only uh, state or public graduate program of social work in the state of Oregon. Uh, and I came, I came to Oregon from Texas where we had 27 schools of social work. Uh, here I'm, I'm, I'm it in the sense of, uh, of the public. Now we do have some privates, but the privates are fairly smaller uh, as, a, as programs of social work. We're the largest school and the only public school of social work in the state of Oregon. So that also adds to part of our mission and, and something that I've brought to PSU that we have a responsibility not only to educate social workers in the city of Portland, but we also have a responsibility to train uh, and prepare social workers to address the needs of our rural communities in Oregon, which is uh, the majority of Oregon is rural, and simultaneously as well as addressing the needs of our indigenous communities in the state of Oregon in, in a true partnership. To your second part of that question, which is why students choose um, uh, to come to uh, PSU and, and the market out there now has changed in the last you know, uh, 10 years, 15 years, which is we have more and more schools of social work offering online programs and very robust and very amazing online programs. But there's still a need uh, and a desire by many students in social work to come to schools that represent who they are, represent their communities, and, and they see the connection between PSU, Schools of Social Work, and its community. And, and we have a, a very active mission uh, on social justice, anti-racism, uh, and really training students to be uh, advocates uh, within their communities and, and make good. 
And I think that's uh, historically has allowed students to recognize the value, not only of the degree, but the value of the relationship that they have between themselves and the faculty within our school and how they give back to their specific communities. And that's, that's the part that as a Dean, I really uh, enjoy, which is watching our students coming through uh, and then seeing the impact that they have, a direct impact that they're having in the community. And, and there, are not, there are no words to really describe um, that value or, or, or that uh, sense of pride uh, for a school and my faculty. Well, good. Um, what's, what's new at Portland State for the next couple of years? What are you guys up to? So there's a lot happening at, at PSU, some of it intentionally and some not. Uh, and I think um, I'll start with the, the not intentional uh, kind of aspects of what's happening, I think, in higher education for many of our universities across the country, which is we continue to see a decline in enrollment. Uh, the most recent, obviously, article that was published, I won't say last week in the New York Times, kind of highlighted how some of the Ivy League uh, and some of the flagship schools are doing fairly well with an increase in enrollment. When then some of our urban institutions like PSU that's centered, uh, in fact, we're 50 acres in downtown uh, park uh, in, in Portland, uh, some of these other institutions are kind of struggling. And we've seen a decline at PSU for the last 10 years of declining enrollment. Uh, that's not uncommon for the state of Oregon either, although we've seen an increase in population it's a fairly young population that already has uh, earned a, a graduate degree working in Intel, Nike, some of the larger corporations that exist here. And then maybe they're, they're families, uh, but they're young families. And they therefore, we haven't been able to really capture uh, and, and invest in that, in that population in the sense of, of growing number for freshman students. Well, we do see, uh, I think, opportunities uh, is to really think outside the box. So as our enrollment continues to uh, have a steady decline, uh, we're increasing our partnerships with the community colleges in a way that we haven't in the past. Uh, we created uh, a center just to support our transfer and our community college students who for the most part make up 60% of the 26,000 students that, that come to PSU uh, to earn a degree. We're investing uh, in a more strategic uh, way in our online education platforms. Now, uh, the School of Social Work and the uh, Department of Criminal uh, Justice here at PSU have, have always had a very strong online uh, platform uh, and one that's received, uh, received recognition uh, for the School of Social Work. But now it's time that we take those models and evidence-based models of best pedagogy and, and online education and really think of, you know, how can we now adapt this to the rest of PSU um, in a meaningful way, in a strategic way, in a collaborative way, and thinking with faculty in a shared governance way that, that really is em embraced in what we're trying to do, which is our model at PSU is let knowledge serve the city. And there are so many ways that we could do that. And I believe that online education will be the catalyst for the future of Portland State University. The other the other part of online education, if we think about it, is, is COVID-19 in so many ways allowed us as deans, as department chairs, and as faculty do things that it would probably would have taken, it probably would have taken me 20 years to convince all of my faculty to teach online. And we did it in three weeks because of COVID-19. Yes, everybody has said that. Everybody I've talked to said exactly those, those words. It, yeah, and, it actually helped us. Yeah, and, it's, and it was somewhat painful, right? Because we had to invest uh, to get faculty 
to be able to teach uh, in this new format, maybe if they didn't have the experience or they didn't feel comfortable with some of the new tools uh, and I simultaneously invest in students to make sure that they had the technology they needed. So like the school social work, one, uh, working closely with one of our donors, we purchased um, uh, numerous iPads and were able to uh, distribute iPads to some of our students who did not have access to a computer at home, uh, working with IT in our university to make sure the bandwidth was there. Now, the question that, that still remains out there is what percent of our faculty who maybe initially were hesitant to move it into this model now come fall when we're moving back to an in-person mm -hmm. platform are gonna say, you know, Jose, I like the flexibility online. I actually had a senior faculty come to me recently said, Jose, I've taught the same course, the same format for 25 years. And they said, and this online platform has allowed me to utilize tools that I never knew existed in a meaningful way, engaging students in a meaningful way. And I feel that I have a better sense of how to measure outcomes that I never had before. And then she paused and they looked at me and they go, and I think I would like to remain online. And I think we may find more and more uh, faculty and students because of the flexibility, because of the tool and the technology that may come to us and say, we would like to remain online. Now, the, the critical question that occurs in a, in a larger volume is what do we do with this overhead that we have now in our institution, right? We, we PSU owns a hotel. We own X amount of buildings for housing. Uh, we invested in, in a new uh, science building. Our school of social work is a gorgeous building that's brand new uh, as well. So what do we do with this massive amount of overhead uh, and, and capital that we have if a large percent of our faculty and student decide we want to stay remote. And, and, and those are going to be really interesting conversations uh, for many institutions, I think, across the country. The other uh, investment and I think uh, kind of initiative, we have a, a new president uh, and a fairly new provost. And I would say that all of our deans are fairly new. And I say fairly new, uh, uh, less than six years. Um, uh, within their tenure uh, as deans. I think the most senior dean, I believe, has five years. Uh, prior to that, the most senior dean was five years, and he became the president of, of the president uh, of, the, of the university at the moment, and Steve Percy uh, is our current president. And Steve has really invested a lot in, in uh, restorative justice. Uh, also, we have, I'm, I'm actually chairing with some colleagues uh, a reimagined campus safety task force to reevaluate how we do uh, campus safety uh, from an equity lens, uh, thinking about uh, what has an ongoing history of um, racism within the city of Portland and how police force um, may have or may have not played a role in how students perceive law enforcement uh, within campus. Now, if Portland State University several years ago had an incident where unfortunately, uh, campus safety uh, shot an individual of color right outside, uh, right there uh, within the campus parameter. And, and that has also created enormous amount of uh, advocacy by faculty and students that our campus safety should be disarmed. Um, mm -hmm. And this task force has spent now the last several months evaluating uh, the various aspects of campus safety to be able to come back to the board and the president, hopefully by the end of the summer, uh, with some suggestions of what, how do we reimagine safety in a meaningful way that, that's equitable 
uh, and that's uh, informed uh, by an equity lens. You know, just just to let you know, I, I doubt if, you, if you're aware of this, but Montana is moving forward to allow guns on campus. And, uh, and you can imagine uh, some of the, the thoughts that run through faculty and staff and administrators. So, <laughs> so I was my first, um, when, I fir- when I was at Texas, my first semester at Texas as a, a program director was when Texas um, uh, passed a bill to allow students and faculty and the public in general um, to uh, carry, as long as they had a concealed weapon uh, license, you could bring a weapon to campus. And I remember that first meeting with faculty and, and for the most part, my BOPOC faculty were the ones that were most concerned. And they said, you know, Jose, the reality is that if there was an active shooter, even if I had a concealed weapon, I am not going to display my concealed weapon because most likely it will be a faculty or student of color to get shot. And there was an enormous amount of concern uh, by faculty of color in regards to this, this uh, rule uh, that and, and bill that Texas passed. And the other one that, that did come, and, and I actually had some concerns, is when I had to have very difficult conversations with faculty in regards to either their promotion uh, or concerns about maybe behaviors or even students. I, we had several incidents of students that, that I always wonder is like, is this person carrying? And, and, and the law did not allow me to ask if they were carrying. And that was another interesting piece to, to the bill in Texas. And it puts you in a really interesting uh, position of safety and concern. So the university at, at uh, Texas State, and I think it was part of the bill, created these kind of safe rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. And the safe rooms was that technically as a, you were not allowed to bring in a weapon. Uh, you had to leave your backpack outside the door uh, if you felt that you need to have some form of conversation with a faculty or student. The challenge to, to these safe rooms was you still were not allowed legally to ask them if they were carrying a weapon. Right. Uh, and then when we go into the room, you realize that there was only one way in and one way out. So if the person did have a weapon, uh, it wasn't really the best place to be to have a difficult conversation. And uh, yeah, it does create some, some interesting uh, di- power dynamics and, and, uh, and uh, earnest fear uh, by many faculty and, and students, and, and particularly those of color. So, you know, you made a comment about uh, about the university now is developing this center for transfer for the two-year schools. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I haven't seen, um, the last few guests that I've talked to really haven't talked about that's a new thing they're transitioning to. So can you, can you share that with our, with our, with our listeners? Definitely. So this is a, an opportunity for us to not only recognize um, that 60% of our student body are transfer students, but really to uh, think holistically about the resources and services that transfer students need. So unlike our, obviously our, our uh, you know, freshman student that, that has the capacity to go back to a dorm room during the middle of the day, maybe take a nap or, or have some food uh, or do their homework, uh, the center is built around the concept that as a transfer student, I show up, uh, 70% of our faculty and students actually come to campus using public transportation uh, because of mm. downtown. Um, so once you're on campus, you're on campus. You're not going to leave. You're not going to go anywhere. And the center provides a space. It has computer uh, space as well for them that they could utilize. If 
Now we have some in the uh, in the library and most of our schools, I have my own uh, within our school social work, we have a computer lab, but this is kind of a center that allows transfer students to feel at home. They also have uh, academic advising embedded uh, within the center for transfer students. And then the other piece that I think is one that is part of this partnership is that the uh, director of the transfer center also has a very strong relationship with the advisors at the community college to make sure that as students are taking courses at the community college and they're saying, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to, I'm going to transfer to a four-year institution that they take courses that transfer into a directly into a degree of PSU. And the value of that is actually it minimizes what we continue to see by unfortunately many transfer students is that by the time they get to the four-year university, they've taken so many courses out of course or content sequence that their financial aid runs out. So usually by the time they're, a uh, senior, even sometimes as juniors, uh, they're coming to me. They're like, how come I don't have any financial aid? And when I look at their degree plan, when I sit down with some students, I realize that they've taken so many electives or courses outside of the degree plan that they literally have run out of financial aid. Um, and that's uh, and that's something that I, I want to see more and more four year and two year institutions to partner in, which is to create a, a pathway for those students uh, that's a clear pathway and, and also thinking about their financial uh, acuity to make sure that they truly understand the financial aid packet and what could happen if they start taking courses outside of degree plan. So this, this, um, this center is, is remarkable. Uh, the leadership within the center is doing a fabulous job at really thinking about our transfer students in a holistic way. And, uh, and it goes back to how uh, PSU was uh, established. And PSU is a young institution. Uh, we've only been around for, actually, in fact, we're celebrating our 75th year, uh, but we actually were established as, a, as an extension center uh, after World War II, actually in 1948 um, at the Vanport Extension Center to serve adult learners, predominantly veterans um, coming out of World War II. Uh, so this model of having a transfer student kind of center really feeds to and supports our grassroots uh, and our foundation at when we were Van Port's uh, extension center. And, uh, and that's remarkable for me because I sit back and I was like, we were built to support working adults and we are continuing to support working adults. Uh, and that's a, that's a wonderful story about our, our institution. You know, as a former um, two-year college dean, I applaud you on that. I think that's just wonderful. That's a great initiative that you're doing there. Thank you for doing that for you your, your schools. Um, can you talk a little bit about yourself and the groundbreaking work you have done for our military and veteran populations? Well, groundbreaking is, is kind of, uh, thank you, Dave. <laughs> I, pre <laughs> I appreciate it. I, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I, um, uh, you know, I served in the Marine Corps, um, I, uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, I uh, attended a community college, Palomar Community College, uh, right outside of Camp Pendleton, California, there in San Diego, actually in San there. Marcos. Where you are, it's a gorgeous yeah. campus. In fact, I, I believe it was one of the first community colleges to offer free tuition uh, in the state of California. Um, I mean, even to today, I still remember the faculty that I had um, at, at Palomar Community College, Dr. Featherstone, who was an anthropology professor there, was just remarkable. So it was actually uh, because of Dr. Featherstone that I wanted to become an anthropologist. I just loved uh, uh, what she was doing uh, with indigenous communities and just the communities in general. And um, 
and I had an injury in the Marine Corps that uh, forced me to cut my Marine Corps career short. And I was looking at all these degree options and plans and anthropology kind of just stuck out because of this mentorship that I had as a faculty member uh, with Dr. Featherstone. And I go back to the VA and I was like, you know, I, want, I really want to get this degree in, in anthropology. And, and through vocational rehab, the focus, if you're a disabled veteran through vocational rehab, the focus is to find you a career path that there, there's a workforce, a clear workforce um, embedded into it. And they said, um, no, they're, they're sorry, you know, anthropology is not, um, there are no workforce uh, needs in anthropology, Jose. Then I come back, I had another amazing faculty member in political science. I said, well, and then I'd love to be a political scientist. I love politics. Uh, VA comes back, he's like, no, vocational rehab uh, at that time was not going to cover political science. And I remember I kind of threw my hands up in the air and the gentleman must have been uh, a social worker. He goes, well, you look like a, like a people person, Jose. How about, how about a degree in social work? Now, unfortunately, um, then, as it is now, the stigma of social work is, is, and the assumption of what we do as a profession is very limited by many. And, and I, too, had this assumption that is like social work. Like, what, I'm going to go in and, like, remove kids from their homes yeah. and put them in foster care without really understanding the complexity of our profession, the grassroots of our profession, what it was founded on, um, and, the, and how much we could actually do. I actually... Uh, I, and many times I've called it, this is kind of like the super Gumby degree, because you really could do whatever you want with a degree in social work. And, and I've proven to do that. So I, as I was making my transition from Palomar Community College after earning my AA degree, uh, I was moving back home to Florida and I was looking at different universities and St. Leo University in Dade City, Florida had a small uh, social work program and I applied and it was a Catholic university. Um, and I applied to their, their program and got accepted. And simultaneously, my wife uh, as well was applying to a social work degree. Uh, and she went to the University of South Florida. So we're kind of competing uh, to see who earned the better grade um, when we we're taking simultaneous courses. From that, um, a bachelor's degree in social work at, at St. Louis University, I went directly into a master's at the University of Central Florida. Um, and uh, Central Florida was uh, a great, um, great catalyst, I think, for my career in so many ways, because not only did they have a very robust uh, uh, MS master's program in social work, but their faculty were very active in research. Uh, and they also had a PhD program. And it was the first time that I was actually introduced to this concept of, of having a PhD or, or being able to attain a PhD. I'm a first generation uh, college student. Um, I'm an immigrant to the United States because I, I immigrated in the 1980s during the Mario boat lift from Cuba. So the com concept of going to college and earning a degree and even thinking about a PhD was not part of my radar in conversations at home. And, uh, and it was actually Paul Maiden, who was the associate dean at uh, the University of Central Florida, is the one that actually introduced me to, like, Jose, you could do this. Uh, Dr. Jezelensky, who was my research faculty at, at Central Florida, uh, said, no, instead of just doing a paper, I actually want you to do an actual research. And I, I did a simple, simple uh, uh, study for one of her classes. And that just the appetite uh, for research, the appetite uh, to be able to seek a PhD was remarkable. And it was, again, because of the, being at the right place, having the right mentors, mentors to lead me in that direction which led me then later on to uh, earn a degree at the University of South Florida, uh, my PhD at the University of South Florida in counseling and education and not really in social work. 
uh, they didn't have a PhD in social work at that time at, at the University of South Florida. And I was kind of uh, geographically bound because of my family. So it made sense for me to stay there. Um, I ended up going back, uh, which is a, a great story. I ended up going back. My first job as an assistant professor was at St. Leo University. Oh, cool. Uh, so many of the faculty that were there when I was an undergrad student were still there. Uh, the president at that time at St. Leo University was uh, uh, Dr. Kirk. And uh, just a remarkable Arthur Kirk, a remarkable human being that became an amazing mentor for me for many years. Um, I left uh, St. Leo to develop a military uh, social work curriculum at the University of Southern California. And that's where this kind of my kind of research and engagement became uh, part of the military uh, kind of terrain um, that Initially, I never thought of doing research on, on veterans and military. In fact, when I got out of the service, I was like, okay, I'm going to start kind of a new identity, new life that has nothing to do with the military. But in 20, in, 2000 and, uh, in 2007, there really was no literature uh, in military social work. And mm-hmm. it was the dean at USC, Marilyn Flynn, who came to me at a conference. I was doing a presentation about military culture, and she came to me at a conference. She goes, I want you to move to LA and, and be the director of a new academic center in San Diego. And I want you to lead an entire curriculum in military social work. And I just looked and I was like, uh, thanks, but uh, no, I'm not moving to LA. And, uh, but then when she kind of put out, you could live in San Diego, that sounded much nicer than live in LA. So, um, uh, I took the bait. We moved to San Diego, uh, developed, uh, in collaboration with uh, developing a national kind of advisory board of colonels and social workers, we put together the first military social work curriculum of the country, um, expanded the online program at the University of Southern California, um, and also developed multiple academic centers across the state uh, to really train uh, social workers to become culturally competent in serving uh, veterans uh, in the US. And that kind of really, the trajectory truly changed my career because then from that moment on, uh, I kind of became known as a kind of military social work expert, even though I had never had an intention of doing so, but it truly changed the course of my career. And I've spent ever since, since uh, I've spent an enormous amount of time in helping student veterans become successful. And that's, and that's been uh, a true um a joy because I too, uh, as a veteran going through higher education, recognizing some of the challenges, being able to give back to student veterans and individuals who serve in combat has truly been remarkable. And I could, I could um, retire. If I could, if I could retire today, I, I would be happy uh, because that's just to see how many of them been able to be successful and graduate and, and after their commitment in uniform um, is, is just something that, that's really uh, uh, fascinating for me and something that I'm very proud of. You know, I was, uh, uh, I was a Navy corpsman, so I was discharged out of San Diego. So I actually was also on Camp Pendleton. But when I came out now, I'm a little bit older than you. I came out in 76 and uh, we weren't the most, veterans weren't the most loved people coming out at that time. Right. So that was, that's why I was so excited to, to talk to you about it because I'm starting to finally see the, tide turn on this over the last few years to say the least but i am very interested on on uh exactly how do we how, how do you make that transition so i guess my next question 
is going to be what can colleges and universities do to specifically help with the transition of a soldier to a student? Yeah, I mean, there, there are two, there's some, there's some items or aspects of this transition that I think uh, the universities can play and then some are up to the veteran, you know, and I'll give you uh, two examples. And I'll use, I'll use myself as an example instead of uh, using a student as an example. But I think the universities, you know, I think we've done, like you, you mentioned, Dave, we've, we've, we've done a much better job now than we, we had, did in the 70s. And today, compared to even at the initial start of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, we've leaps and bounds of what universities, I think, uh, the American Council on Education has done a remarkable job. Um, uh, Kale and, and other organizations are really uh, thought provoking and helping universities really think about how do we transfer uh, the experience and lived experience of veterans and their MOS training? How does that translate into, into credits? Uh, and higher education. So we've, we're, we're doing a remarkable uh, job in helping veterans maximize their ex work experience in the service to college credits. The next part is, how do we get faculty to embrace veterans and the value that veterans bring into their classroom? So instead of, of seeing this person as potentially um, another case of uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or military sexual trauma uh, or the fears and unknowns of what a veteran is uh, because, you know, you know, unfortunately, so few of us actually serve in uniform. Uh, there's still an enormous amount of stigma. I try to help faculty recognize that you technically have a student, potentially you have a student in this classroom who's traveled the world, uh, could probably speak uh, multiple languages, um, has been able to deal and work under enormous amount of stress and remain calm for the most part, has had enormous amount of leadership uh, experience by the age that they're 19 or 20. They're actually leading teams by the age of 20. Um, I said, it takes, you know, it takes us as a department chair years to get to that point that I could lead uh, 20, uh, 20 faculty. And even then, usually the faculty are leading uh, the department chairs. So, I mean, you have... I'll use the word specimen. You have an individual in this classroom that has just an enormous amount of wealth and uh, of experience and has seen so much. And how do we capitalize on that? The other thing that universities could do, and we did this at, at St. Leo uh, University and it was uh, well received was this, think of a way that we could partner with HR and faculty to identify who, those faculty on campus that are veterans. So at St. Leo, what we ended up doing is we had like a little sticker that said, I too am a veteran. And initially I engaged uh, HR and I said, like, can you let me know who's a veteran on campus? Like, no, Jose, sorry, you know, HR, we can't do that. I said, okay. So I sent out an, a mass email to the campus and I said, if you're a veteran and you would like to uh, support our students, uh, come by my office. I have this little sticker and literally said, I too am a veteran. It had like a little logo of the university and they would put it on their doors. And what we found is that by doing so, veterans felt more welcome uh, within campus. And they actually started seeking advice more often from individuals that had that sticker. They would just come into the office like, hey, what branch of service you, uh, you served in? And it was really remarkable just to see how students started feeling connected with faculty that otherwise they would not have gone to by just having that little identification piece. The other part that I think universities can do um, and we've and I've done this at other universities is to partner with uh, the VA uh, and the vet centers 
Uh, and by, and I say, and I'll focus on the vet centers because part of the mission of the vet centers and they're funded directly by Congress to do this is to do outreach. Um, at USC, at Texas State and at St. Leo, uh, we did this, which is we partnered with the local vet center. We actually gave them an office space um, on campus. They would come in and actually see our students. So where our counseling center is focused predominantly with a very traditional age student, the vet center can really focus on veterans and provide counseling to them. What has occurred over and over again, every time we've seen these partnerships is that the vet center then also reaches out to your faculty and your staff who are veterans and become a resource to your faculty and staff on campus who are veterans. Uh, and that has been a remarkable partnership and resource for the community as whole. Well. It's, it's meeting the needs of the vet center, meeting the need of the institution. The last uh, piece that I would say is to really think of how do we create advising uh, and create an environment that respects uh, our veterans. And it, that doesn't mean just to be, uh, you know, veteran friendly, uh, as the logo right. has been right. for many years, because I could be, I could smile and say I'm veteran friendly, but are we truly putting policies and implementing change within our institutions that, that feel, that make veterans feel as though they're welcome within your organization? What do we do for Veterans Day? Uh, how do we recognize veterans uh, during certain events uh, or activities? Uh, how do your faculty engage your student veteran population uh, and vice versa? Now, there is another piece of this that we have no control over, but I think we could help, which is how does the veteran himself or herself transition into higher education and transition into kind of becoming a civilian again? And that requires enormous amount of mentorship uh, work, understanding the experience of veterans, um, and I'll share my, my own kind of personal kind of uh, trajectory and, and kind of path through that, which is when I first came out of the Marine Corps and, and I was in that class with Dr. Featherstone, I still had a high and tight. Uh, I really didn't believe in client self-determination. Um, I still use military time. Well, I, I still use military time for the most part, but I, but I was really rigid. Uh, I, my worldview was extremely rigid. Um, I just wanted Dr. Featherstone to tell me how do I earn an A in this class and move on. And, uh, and I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't very open-minded uh, about other worldviews and other experiences that individuals had. And I think that comes with an enormous, by having the right faculty with you, the right mentors around you, uh, family members that can help you understand how once again to be, be a civilian uh, within a very complex environment, mostly higher education. Um, how to be able to be mindful to the things that you're saying that could actually be hurtful to others, even though they haven't served in uniform. Um, how to respect that even though the 18 and 19 year old uh, student that's inside your same classroom who hasn't had a deployment, hasn't traveled, but they too have a lived experience that we have to respect. And, and for veterans, a lot of times that, that takes time to process. And I and that's the area that I really uh, enjoy, even as a dean, whether I mentor uh, veterans today. And I meet with student veterans periodically. I'm mentoring, I think, uh, four student veterans at the moment. Uh, and those are the conversations that I have because they'll come to me very frustrated. They're like, how come we can't get from point A to point B? Treat this as a mission. I was like, well, because it's a learning process. And this is what I hope you're going to learn in this process. And just stick with it. Many times they, they don't, I, I have them um, join committees. Uh, on campus, uh, and I do it intentionally so they could understand how to work with diverse thoughts and opinions of individuals and how to respect that. 
And they usually come to me. They're like, I want to quit this committee. I was like, no, just stick it out. You'll, you'll, I promise you the, the benefits at the end when you look back and reflect. And it could take you years. And it took me years. Uh, and, I, and I admit that. I used to, when I assistant professor, I actually had a, a little sign in my office that said, if you want to kill a good idea, create a committee. Uh, but that was my mindset. Um, I, I was still thinking as a Marine. Um, and, and now I value and respect what committees do for us um, and, and the work of faculty and the work of our community partners. Yeah, that uh, I would say being mission oriented was is is pretty much with <laughs> very much that way, which is which is good. But on the same token, it's nice to have a diverse view on how other things look at, and I think that's wonderful of how you're trying to tackle that. Yeah, I think you have to, uh, and mostly for for the work that we do, not only in our profession and social work, but the work that we do in higher education. Um, it's, it's not about one lens or one view. You really want to have uh, an entire community uh, helping you kind of conceptualize either curriculum or how do we address uh, budget constraints and budget concerns and, and the mission and future of any institution cannot be done by one view. It, it, it requires multiple worldviews to do that. I'm going to switch uh, topics on you right now. How about um, what, have, what has been uh, some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? And what advice can you give new college deans? Well, I would, um, yeah, you know, I, I reflect back. That's a great question because I reflect back to uh, Dr. Dedez at St. Leo University when I was an undergrad student. Dr. Dedez was the vice president of student affairs and, um, and I reflect as a student thinking uh, the role that he played in supporting students uh, in a meaningful way, but was not part of the academic affairs, obviously, umbrella. And one time, uh, St. Leo University decided that they were going to hand out uh, new laptops for all freshman students coming in. And I was a transfer student. And I made an argument as to why transfer students should not also be rewarded with this beautiful laptop. Uh, and I went and I advocated with Dr. Dedez and, and finally, I, I, he, think he, he just gave up and he says, you know what, Jose, I'm going to give you this laptop. Well, it, years later, when I come back as an assistant professor, the university still had that model. They would give laptops to freshman students. Now, he never went and explained to me how freshman students ended up with a laptop. He just kind of like gave up and gave me one. <laughs> and, uh, and then years later, when I was an assistant professor, they still had this model. And I started looking around. I was like, well, they're doing it again. They're not giving them to transfer students. And I sat down with my department chair, and I was like, um, her name was Marguerite McGinnis. I said, Marguerite, how could this happen? And it was Marguerite McGinnis who sat down and said, this is the premium that these freshman students who live on the dorms are paying. Here's the premium, which is much less, that our transfer students are paying. And that's how we're ending up uh, with these laptops and other resources that go to uh, these students who are living in the dorms. And, and one of those lessons, and a simple lesson, right, which is, we have to, I think we, as faculty early on, I wish we would engage faculty in an early on in, in addressing and helping them understand the budgets and the dynamic and the complexity of budgets in higher education. What percent comes from the state if you're a public? What percent is supported through tuition? What percent is supported through the foundation? How do the salary structures uh, uh, operate and work for uh, administration or the president? Is part of the salary for the president being supported by the foundation or not? So I think sometimes, unfortunately, as we're making very difficult decisions for colleges and universities, 
our constituents, which is our faculty and our students, don't recognize how the budget really operates and works. So I've, one of the things that I learned from that is to be always very transparent. When I have a student that walks into my office asking me questions about how we're spending X amount of dollars, I they probably regret that they came in my office because I, I said, well, this is a perfect time for me to do a lecture. And, I, and since I don't get a chance to teach often, um, by the time they leave, they're like, I think you gave me more than I would have asking, Jose, but I appreciate that because it's an opportunity to educate uh, not only our students and our faculty, and I think we have also as public universities a responsibility to educate the public of how higher education budgets work. And we have failed. I, I truly believe that public, public universities have failed to work with communities to help them understand how uh, the, not only the budget, but the allocation to higher education has worked and in many states has declined over the years. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, conversation that I have, uh, at least here in my neighborhood. I have all my, every time I run into a neighbor, I'm letting them know, this is why you need to vote in this direction uh, because we need more funding for, for higher education. Um, the other, the other uh, aspect uh, I think that I would actually advise and something that I learned, I spent uh, four years of my career working in student affairs uh, and I had a dual appointment. I was the director of uh, student veteran affairs at St. Leo University and I still had a faculty position uh, in the graduate program of social work. And those four years, 50% of my FTE in student affairs taught me so much about campus life, about the struggles of our students, the, the struggle of the staff that work on with students and the student affairs kind of role. That it's not just about, and, and this is the quote that we used to uh, use when we lived in, in Florida, it's like, well, student affairs is those folks that take students to Disney World. They do so much more. And they're so integral uh, to the success of our students and the student's life. And I wish I would see more engagement and, and uh and understanding by academic deans to really embrace what student affairs, because we work in these silos uh, and rarely do we see an opportunity to truly understand what the other one does. Um, and those four years have been uh, so valuable uh, for me as a dean today, uh, because when I see the challenges that our students are having, either in food insecurity or housing insecurity, or financial insecurity, I, I really respect the amazing work that's happening in the student affairs side. And, and I'm always asking our vice president for student affairs, how can we be more service and more, and how can uh, academic affairs support the important mission that you have in your end? Good points. Um, so let me ask you then a follow-up question is, what, would, what do you think are the most important qualities for someone to excel as a college dean? Willing to accept uh, the fact that we don't know everything. Uh, I would start there. Uh, understanding uh, the value and embracing the value of, of uh, being able to be humble and, uh, and to be honest when you make mistakes, uh, to be transparent uh, uh, fiscally uh, with your faculty and your students of how you're making decisions and why you've made certain decisions. Um, being able to uh, embrace uh, when you make errors and let others know that, yes, that, that was an error and I'm human and this is why we made this decision. Um, and also seeking advice. I, I would say that um, seeking advice uh, from colleagues 
uh, building a network of, of other deans and provosts and, and presidents uh, and community members who can support you and help you understand the culture, mostly if you're coming into a new institution, to help you understand the culture of that institution and the values and the history, I, I think that is uh, profoundly needed and, and a great asset. The, the other part I would say as a new dean coming into a, a new environment is to, as soon as you can, become active in your community, uh, become a, uh, be part of a board uh, within your community, uh, just be an active member because that also helps you understand some of the tempo in the city and helps you understand uh, maybe some of the uh, unrest uh, if there's any, and we've seen obviously here in Portland uh, for the last, um, during last year, we've seen quite a bit of unrest but I, but I wouldn't have understood the unrest if I didn't understand the history uh, that exists uh, here in Portland and why people felt that they needed to um, go out into the street. Excellent points. Um, how do you see higher ed evolving over the next five to 10 years? Crystal ball time. That is, that really is. And, I, and I've been saying this for a long time and, I, and I'm going to stick with it. Uh, which I think uh, higher education uh, most likely will end up in a, in a position where we become more, um, we'll see greater mergers. Uh, we'll probably see greater mergers in the state, in the state schools. Um, we'll probably see stronger partnerships with community college and four-year institution because of necessity. Um, we will uh, increase our online footprint. At one time, I believe that we were going to be able to increase our international footprint. I wonder um, how we'll achieve that. I think we've actually lost some, uh, some credibility and trust internationally. So it'll take us now probably 10 years to get back to where we should be in regards to the international uh, uh, footprint that we had in the past. Um, higher education also simultaneously has an enormous amount of trust to build and relationships to build with our community. So I think we will, in the next five years, I hope, see more and more institutions partnering with communities uh, and communities of color, uh, thinking about the social justice uh, question and how we implement that in our curriculum. The other part, I think, is that our curriculums will change. So I'm, I'm hoping that we will see more institutions offering opportunities to adult learners and taking into consideration um, uh, the lived experiences that they've had uh, and give them credit uh, for that work experience uh, that, that exists out there that's remarkable. Um, that's not part of a course, uh, but it's a way for us to recognize uh, what they bring, the value that they bring to higher education. Well, Jose, thanks so much for talking with me today. This was, this was a lot of fun for me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dave, I, I greatly appreciate it. It's, always, uh, it's actually always fun to, to have a conversation, not only about my own institution, but really to think holistically about higher education in the U.S. and abroad and, and the work that we've done. And I really appreciate the, uh, your, your podcast and, and your interviews. I've, I've been listening to them, I, obviously, Many of them were my colleagues when I was an AC fellow in 2014, and and by the and just uh, a shout out that that class was the best class of AC fellows ever. <laughs> uh, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity, Dave. Well, that's great. I, I know uh, 
Nicole and uh, Marie and John would be would be in agreement with you on that, to say the least. <laughs> I appreciate it, sir. You have a wonderful day. You too. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.